You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Again, it's great to see all of you here this morning. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jay, I'm the lead pastor. And again, welcome to all of you who are online, either watching this live, watching or listening to it as a recording later. We're so glad that you're with us as well. So it is a new year, and I know that this is so apropos, and you know, it just, it's what happens with the new year, but we gotta talk New Year's resolutions for just a minute. Anybody have a New Year's resolution? I'm just curious. Okay, no one. That's really exciting. Okay, good. I don't know about you in the online world, but something really interesting is happening with New Year's resolutions this year, apart from any other year, and that is there are fewer people making them, which is really, really interesting. And, you know, folks who track this stuff and who are engaged with this stuff tend to think it's because of the uncertainty of what the future holds for all of us and just how chaotic and crazy things continue to be in our culture, in our lives, but about one in four people are still making New Year's resolutions. And I thought this was interesting, and it depends again on which entity you look at. And they sometimes change order, but this is the top five, or these are the top five things that people are saying that are a New Year's resolution for them. For those who are setting that, they want to live healthier. Okay, we get that. Personal happiness. And there's usually a derivative of that, of some kind of that, in every year of New Year's resolutions. Losing weight. Now, how about that for those of us here in the zip code? Did you, did you catch the correlation this last month that with the holidays and all this rich food, we couldn't go outside and exercise with the snow and ice? That was kind of a tough combination. Jamie and I have just started running again, and it feels like I've never run in my life. It's just, it's brutal. I'm completely deconditioned. Wasn't able to exercise or get out, really. And then career and job goals. We are still in the midst of what they are calling the great resignation, where there is so much movement in the workforce of people quitting jobs and choosing to go to other, jo- other jobs and reevaluating their careers, what they're engaged in, and then financial goals. People wanting to spend less and, and save more. But I wonder if this New Year's resolution is on anyone's mind. Battling the ultimate sin. Now that sounds ominous, but it's actually where we're going to go this morning as we continue on in our study of the book of Jeremiah. And if you were with us last week, Gabe did a fantastic job of introducing us to this amazing book. And these are the points that we walk through just by way of introduction of the book. And um, there are many, many, many parallels between Jeremiah's world and our world today. That's why we've titled this series, Faithful Living in Troubled Times. But as we skip to the bottom there, there's a very clear message in this book. And it is a message of judgment, but it's also a, a message of hope. And that's what we'll look at this morning. But I'm just, I'm just going to warn you that this, this passage is, it's tough. And it's, it's dark. And there's hope embedded in it. But for several weeks, we're going to look at this reality that God does judge sinfulness and selfishness and brokenness as well as he should. And in particular, what we look at this morning is really, we're looking at a people who are committing the ultimate sin. So that immediately begs the question, well, what is the ultimate sin? 
And Jesus himself actually does business with this in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, he speaks very directly to this. And we encourage you to go back into our sermon archives and to listen to that sermon in particular in the Gospel of Matthew because we really unpack the reality of this. But if you're thinking that the ultimate sin is a single act, then that's not the ultimate sin. If you yourself are wondering, gosh, have I committed the ultimate sin? Well, if you're thinking of a act, the answer is no, because it's not a single act. Jesus tells us, again, in Matthew 12, what it's all about, and we see it illustrated here in Jeremiah chapter 2. The ultimate sin is the persistent, consistent, unrelenting rejection of God. It's the reality that someone with their life continually says over and over again no to the grace and goodness and open invitation of right relationship with God. That is the ultimate sin. And that is what these people are doing in Jeremiah chapter two. Now they are religious people. They claim to know and love God, but by their very actions, they're proving they don't. They're not loyal to him. They don't trust him. They're disobeying him. And by their very actions, they're showing they've actually rejected God, even though they're religious, religious people. And so there's a lot for us to learn from this and to focus on with this. And yes, in the midst of all this, there is a powerful hope that we will also look at as well. So Jeremiah chapter two is 37 verses long. So we don't have time to go through 37 verses in 35, 40 minutes. So we're gonna do a representative study of this chapter and jump around. And we're gonna start here in Jeremiah chapter two. And just very quickly, I wanna pray once again for God to speak into our hearts and lives. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active, that it p penetrates to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It goes deeply to our hearts. And so we pray that you will help us do business with our hearts that you will help us to hear you and then to be willing to respond to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So here is Jeremiah chapter two. This is how it starts. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, set apart for special, special relationship with him. The first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And right away, and we're gonna see this over and over again in the, in the book of Jeremiah, these really powerful, vivid illustrations that describe God's relationship with his people. And this is one of them. This has that feel and that vibe of a newly married couple and their excitement and their joy about what they have together and, and, and the fact that they have this new, deeply intimate relationship. And really what we'll see over and over again, starting with the opening verse here or verses of chapter two, is Jeremiah will constantly say, remember what you had. Remember how things were with your relationship with the Lord. Earlier this year, my, my wife Jamie and I were cleaning out my mom's house, as you, many of you know from our story. My, my dad passed away a couple years ago, and, um, and I'm cut more from the cloth of my dad. I'm more of a saver, not quite a pack rat, but a saver. My dad was a pack rat, 
And so there was just tons of stuff to sort through and clean out when he passed away. And my mom is less of a pack rat than him. And so she had always wanted to just get things taken care of and cleaned up, so we did. And we spent the summer pretty much with the help of some friends sorting through things, doing things. We had this huge garage sale where we cleaned everything out. But at the same time, we also did some of that with our home as well. And thankfully, Jamie is not a pack rat. She's the one who's organized, and we, we tease her unfairly that she's a purger. She doesn't purge everything. She's kept me around, but she gets rid of a lot of stuff that isn't helpful. Sometimes I'm not, but she still keeps me around. But we run a pretty lean machine, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And she has discipled me and changed me in a good way with that. I'm not quite the pack rat I was. But very quickly, in his great sense of humor that God has, when he brings two people together who are opposites, he almost always brings a pack rat and a thrower or a purger together, right? And so if you're the pack rat, you hide what you want to have saved, and then you let the rest be thrown out. A little free advice for you there. All that being said, when we were looking through some of the stuff that hadn't been gone through, we came across some stuff that we'd saved in our attic. And one of those things by design were these, these love notes that Jamie and I used to write each other. Now, those of you who don't know our story, we were high school and college sweethearts. We dated six years before we got married. And back in those days, you know, th there wasn't social. There wasn't even cell phones. You, you if you wanted to communicate, it was a payphone while we were at school in opposite states, or it was snail mail letters. And so we wrote all these letters, and God bless my sweetheart of a wife, she saved all the letters that I sent her. And so we're looking through these letters, and it's embarrassing and endearing all at the same time. You know, I'm looking at what we used to write each other, and, and it was sweet, and it was it was loving, and we had all these nicknames. And my poor wife, I have like 10,000 nicknames for her. And if you're in my life and I love you, you're gonna get a nickname unless you tell me not to nickname you. And so Jamie has the most. And I got to see once again, this is where that nickname came from. But all that being said, there was this sweet, connective blessing and intimacy when we, were, when we were dating as, as boyfriend and, and girlfriend. And that's what Jeremiah is drawing on with this illustration with the people as he's calling them to remember what they had with the Lord. Do you remember what it was like when God rescued you from slavery in Egypt? Do you remember what it was like all those years that you wandered through the desert because you would not trust and obey him, but he was still with you and he took care of you and he provided for you. He's calling them to remember how things were. And that's very necessary for us as well because it's so easy to lose sight of what we have in the Lord, what he's done for us, what he's given to us. In fact, if you're married here this morning, when is the last time you and your spouse talked about how things used to be, and hopefully they still are, but what it was like when you first came together. You know, when I'm doing premarital or marital counseling with couples, we'll almost always go there. What, why him and why her? And there's, even with conflicted couples, something that changes when they begin to think about, okay, why did I originally choose you? What was it that attracted me to you, that drew me to you? It's, it's, it's drawing back on this, this necessary intimacy and joy. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is trying to do here with this people who are far, far away from God. He's asking them to remember. 
but he also asks them to do something else very, very important, and that is to recognize where they're at. Because they've rejected God by replacing him with other things and other false gods, other idols, really. And he talks about this a lot. And here's one of the places. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? And we have to stop here for a minute and understand the frame of reference here. With all the cultures that surrounded Israel, they were, they were polytheistic. They were pagan. They believed in multiple gods. And so if you discovered another god that you should be worshiping to cover all your bases then, you would add that god to, to the list of gods that you worshiped. Very common practice among pagan people. Still common in, in cultures today. You cover all your bases. You discover a new god. You don't get rid of your old gods. You just add him or her or whatever to what you worship. But he's saying... His people, God's people, have done something that no one would do. They've rejected him completely, and they've replaced him with another God. And the irony is, he's the only true God. So what they've replaced him with is a false God, and that's what he's talking about here. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. And he goes on to say, it's everybody. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets— they say to wood, you're my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. What? They have turned their backs to me and not their faces, yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. And it's, it's so dark and so disconcerting and so hard to understand. And aren't you glad that, that we're not like that? I mean, look what they go on. Look what Jeremiah goes on to say. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves when you're in trouble? Let them come to you if they can save you when you're in trouble, which they won't because they're not gods. They're not real. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. That is not a compliment. There were a lot of towns in Judah. I'm so glad I'm not like that. And I'm so glad you're not either. Because you're not out making these little figurines of wood and rock and, and worshiping them. At least most of you aren't. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Or do we? We stylize ourselves when we see these kinds of descriptions, this kind of idolatry, as so much more sophisticated than that. <laughs> How could they do that? I'm glad I don't do that. Well, the issue isn't if you and I are tempted to make idols. The real issue is what kind are you making? What kinds of idols are there in your life and mine? Let's take a test drive with that. Can happiness become an idol? It is a common resolution, as we saw, for people. So, what are you willing to do in the name of personal happiness? Or what about work? Work is important, is a good thing, as is happiness. But how much of your and my identity comes from our work? And ironically, the more we give ourselves to work, the more pats on the back we get. We get promotions. People look at us and, 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 and uh, 
commend that, and, and that all has its place, but is it possible for work to become too important to us? In fact, when any of these things we're talking about here become too important to us, what do they become? They become an idol. It's no different than crafting a little figurine and worshiping that because what we're describing is, is worship. And we could do this with so many things. Money can become an idol. Our health can become an idol. Marriage can become an idol. We can expect our spouse to meet needs in our lives that only God can meet. And that can be true of any of these other things. And I'm just thinking through some. Children can become an idol. Our comfort can become an idol. Politics can become an idol. We can look to that for something it can never promise. Retirement is an idol in our culture. You know, the American dream of retirement where amass enough money and enough resources so someday you can do nothing or just do whatever you want. That, that's, that's not biblical. Scripture doesn't talk about retirement. It talks about redirecting, but not retiring. And yet any of those things, they're all good things, but they can all become too important to us, and we can look to them to meet needs that they were never intended to meet. So the issue really isn't if we still turn to idols. The issue is, can you recognize yours? Because God's people were so consumed by their idols that they couldn't recognize what they were doing anymore. And in fairness, we step back from this and go, what, what is with them? And in fairness, what's with us? Why would we turn away from God and look to these other things that can never fulfill or satisfy us? And the Lord speaks to this in this very passage. This is why my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, they've rejected him, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what's, okay, so what's a cistern and why does that matter? Because this would have connected deeply with people in that culture. They knew exactly what was being said about that. When we were in Israel in 2016, we got to see many cisterns. And this is a picture of a cistern from my phone. This is a cistern for the city of Hazor, which in its day, in King Solomon and King David's times, it was, Hazor was a city that was 10 times the size of Jerusalem in its day. It was a massive city. And this is one of the many cisterns that they had for the city. And basically, a cistern was essential critical for life because in a semi-arid climate where you didn't get much rain or rain came and went very infrequently you needed to collect rain rainwater as much as possible and so that's what these cisterns were they collected rainwater and they were very big and very deep this is a picture looking down into it this is a picture looking up from it they'd coat these with plaster so that they wouldn't leak and if you had a cistern that was not working right, that had a leak and that drained out your water, that was a catastrophe because water was life. In a semi-arid climate, water was everything. And a cistern meant that you had life. And if you had a broken cistern, that was disaster. And that is what God is saying that these people are doing by turning to idols, is they are robbing themselves of the very life that they're looking for. Why would people do that? Because they're thirsty. 
you're thirsty, and I'm thirsty. And we are hardwired and plumbed to worship the one true God. And when we don't, and we put something else in his place, in our lives, we're actually robbing ourselves of the very life we're looking for. And it's so easy to do. And these idols, these good things that we can make ultimate things, it can be so insidious because we just don't see it until we lose it, until it's threatened, until it's exposed somehow by a crisis in our lives. And then all of a sudden, it becomes very, very real. But we have to understand how God sees idolatry, what it means to him what it means for us. And so Jeremiah will go into some very vivid language here. And here we go. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Now, we need to do business with what's being said here because we're about to see three very vivid pictures of how God regards spiritual idolatry. This says that you're acting like a prostitute, and they were. But it's actually more graphic than that. In the original language in Hebrew, it says, under every spreading tree, you spread your legs. Can you say that in church? I just did. Should I? Well, that's what it literally says here in the original language. Because in Baal or Baal worship, in the fertility goddess worship, the way you worshiped was you had sex with whoever and whenever, wherever you could. And it often took place on hills, right out in the open, just like animals would, because that's how you worshiped in your idolatry. That's, that's offensive. And it absolutely is. And there's a reason for that that we'll look at in just a minute. But let's look what he goes on to say. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind and her craving in her heat. Who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Now, I'm a city kid. Didn't grow up in the country. Haven't lived in the country. Had a friend who lived in the country when I was, I think, about third grade, went out to his house, spent the night, and he was on this farm where he was living, growing up, and had never really been around livestock. And there was this one horse, a mare, that was in her own corral, and she was angry. I mean, you, you did not want to step in that corral. And, and he said, don't go in there. And I said, well, you don't need to tell me that. I can see that. And I asked him at one point, what, what's wrong with that horse? What is her problem? And he said, she's in heat. Do you see the stallions over there in the other stable? Yeah, there's a reason we don't let them near her. We don't want them to mate. And she's angry about it. She wants sex that badly. It's that primal. It's that powerful. And what Jeremiah and what God is saying through him here is, that's what you're like. in how you were living your lives, literally and spiritually. But if that's not enough, he goes on to say this. 
Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? And of course, it's a rhetorical question intended to get an answer of no, but that's not true for God's people. And again, this is another comparison of you're like a bride who takes off her ring so she doesn't feel guilty when she goes and has sex with anyone but her husband. That's the image that's being drawn here. And we hear this and we look at this and we go, man, that's, that's offensive. And that's the point. You see, so often we construe sin to be, oh, you know, I've just, I've committed a little sin or I've done this or I've done that. Or maybe a lot of people even deny that they're sinful or that they're broken apart from a right relationship with God. But the reality here and what Jeremiah will continue to help us see and that what we will see through the course of this series is that sin is not just about breaking the rules. Sin is about breaking the heart of God. When you and I wrong him, when you and I disobey him, when we are not loyal to him, when we choose not to trust him, when something or someone other than him gets our affection and our loyalty and our worship, it's like we're cheating on him in the worst possible way. Sin isn't about breaking rules. It's about breaking relationship and breaking the heart of God. God equates sin to spiritual adultery. And so we have to stop and do business with this. The question isn't if you are breaking God's heart at some point. The question is when. So in an honest assessment of your priorities, the focus of your life, your relationships, your relationship with God. Are you breaking God's heart this morning? And the good news, the life-changing news, the incredible news is that you don't have to stay that way. In fact, God himself makes a way for you to come to him. And Jeremiah talks about this over and over again. You will see this word 33 times through the book of Jeremiah. Go and proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree, and we've already seen what that's referencing, and you have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. He will go on to say, return, faithless people, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. No more corrupt leaders who were also taking advantage of them. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of your backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God, is what he's hoping they'll say. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me. Over and over again, he says, return. If you read the minor prophets, the, not minor in message, but minor in terms of the length of what they had to say, if you read the minor prophets or any of the other prophets, Isaiah, whatever, over and over again, you will see and hear this message, return return, return. Why? Because it's possible to return to God, no matter how far you've gotten away from him. And that's just some of the hope that's embedded here 
but you need his help. You and I need his help to return to him. You cannot do it on your own. Willpower will not do it. It's not enough. Trying harder will not do it. It's not enough. You and I need his help to return to him. And he talks about that later on in Jeremiah. It says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, when it says that someday God will put his law on their hearts and they will know him. That is the deepest level of knowing possible between two people. It's the deepest level of intimacy. And here's the husband-wife connection again. It is an intimacy that's described in a husband-wife relationship. And when Jesus himself, once again, in one of the many times he said, this is what right relationship with God looks like, this is what it means to know God, he said this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, do you? Do you know him? Not know about him, do you know him? Because there is a defining moment where you receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior and can truly know him. But you need his help to do that. And he wants to give that help to you. He's giving that help to you and me once again this morning for those of you who have not made that choice. And it's okay if you don't remember exactly when that happened. It could have been a defining season, but there is a defining moment in a defining season where you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. In the Gospel of John, chapter 114, it says, yet to all who received him, he gives the right to become children of God. If you've received him into your life as your Lord and Savior, as the God you want to worship, then you know him. And that's what this was pointing to with what we just read. But even when we know him, even when we know better, even when we know we shouldn't, even when we know we're looking for something we're never going to find in our spiritual thirst, that we're looking for something to satisfy us in a way that it never can, even when we're in that place, he offers a way back for us. He offers a way for us to return to him, and he helps us do it. And it's through this reality known as repentance. And what this word at its heart literally means is to change direction, is to turn around. This is really what's at the heart of repentance. It's a changing of your heart and your mind. It means values, actions, motives, behavior. This is why trying harder, working harder, isn't going to do it. This isn't about behavioral change. This is about our need for a Savior. Not a change of behavior, a need for a Savior 
who helps us do this. And if we ask him, he will help us do it. And next week, Gary Brashears is going to help us understand even more specifically and definitively what, what repentance truly looks like. What does it mean to change your mind and heart? It's a defining moment where you receive Jesus into your life. So it is a defining moment, but it's also a process that once you know him, there's this continual process. Sometimes it's day by day. Sometimes it's hour by hour. Sometimes it's moment by moment of turning away from your brokenness, turning away from your selfishness and sin and choosing to turn back towards the Lord, turning back towards Jesus. But my friends, it is possible and it was true for this people, unfortunately, most of them. You can come to the point of no return. And the point of no return is when you over and over and over and over and over and over again say no to God. Where by your actions and by the attitude of your heart, you say, I'm not doing that. Nope. This is going to satisfy my thirst. I'm going to continue to drink from this cesspool instead of from the living water, the God who wants to give me what I ultimately need. And if you and I continually do that over and over, no, 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 no. That is the point of no return. Because God in his grace and mercy will come to us over and over again. He's coming to you and me again this morning through what you're hearing and through his word. And he will come at us in the best possible way again and again and again. But there is a limit to how many times he will do that. And as you look at this amazing book with me, as we continue to study this in the weeks and months to come, you're going to see these people get chance after chance after chance after chance. And time and time again, they're going to say no, 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 no. And ultimately, God will let them settle for the brokenness that they're insisting on. And he will stop coming to them and offering a way out and a way to return to him. So, Will you return to him this morning? Some of you, again, you need for the first time, really, to turn to him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. But for those of us who do know and love him, are, are we willing to return to him again? Because this amazing God helps us with that, wants us to do that. No one wants us to quench our deepest thirsts in him more than God himself. And in compassion and grace, he looks upon us in our brokenness and he has every reason to turn his back on us and walk away. And yet over and over again, he offers us a way out, offers us a way out. So will you take it this morning? Will you remember what you have in him? Will you do the honest, authentic, heavy lifting of recognize, recognizing where you're looking for other things in your life to meet needs that only God can meet? And then when you put your finger on that, are you willing to return to him by repenting? Not just necessarily trying harder, but asking for his help and then acting on the power of his Holy Spirit. These last couple weeks, we got to have family in town, which I know was true for a number of you over the holidays, true for us. I have a nephew and um, his wife, 
who live in Idaho, the far edge of Idaho. So it's quite a deal for them to, to come over here. We only get to see them once a year, and they came for Christmas, and it was just fantastic to have them come. But they drove. They didn't fly. They drove from Idaho. And if you'll remember the weather of the last couple weeks, there was a lot of snow in the gorge. In fact, so much snow and ice that multiple times they closed it entirely. And they were trying to make their way back, knowing that there was, you know, going to be some weather. And my nephew had called and asked me before he came, Uncle Jay, do you think it'd be a good idea to buy chains? If you're driving to see us, yeah, I think that would be a good idea if you had chains. And so they bought those chains, and they used those chains not long after they left us, about a week ago. And the snow was so heavy that they kept getting turned around. And finally, they tried to go over low, low pass to get over this side of Hood, eventually to try to get to I-84 because everything else was closed, including 26. And they got into this really heavy snow, and they saw people turning around ahead of them but thought, well, let's, let's, let's try. And then they got stuck. And thankfully, they had the presence of mind to also pack not just chains but a shovel. And so they were able to shovel their tires out a little bit, enough so that they could turn around and come back. And we got this call about af- mid-afternoon. Is it okay if we come back? So we're not getting home today. And we said, No. No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. But as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about this morning and the spiritual realities we're doing business with, I thought of this story, and every illustration has its issues. It doesn't cover every angle. But I thought, how representative of what we're talking about this morning? My nephew and my niece-in-law they realized they were going the wrong way. They recognized they were in trouble. And yes, they even got stuck. But they didn't hit the point of no return. They they chose to turn around and to come back. And we graciously, willingly, happily welcomed them back. That is such a picture of this amazing God that we worship. He really does not want to condemn you. In fact, his word says he does not delight in condemning selfish, broken people who continually slap his hand of grace and mercy away, who continually reject his help to return to him. But because he's a God of justice, he has to at some point, and he will. And we cannot look past the necessary warning that this book will give us over and over again. Don't settle for drinking water from the cesspool when you can have the living water of true life. And so as our worship team comes, we're going to sing about the reality that's talked about here and in the New Testament. And in particular, in Romans chapter 2, it says the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance. And it is his kindness, once again, that is coming to you and saying, do you really want to keep living like that? Do you know that when you live like that, it's like you're climbing in bed with someone who's not your spouse. It's spiritual adultery, and it hurts me. You're not just breaking my rules. You're breaking my heart. 
is that really where you want to be this morning? Because you don't have to. That is the hope of this passage. This amazing God who we hurt at times, who we wrong at times, who we betray at times, welcomes us back because he wants to give us something better. So will you respond this morning? Will you believe that? Off to the sides we have communion. I would encourage you to remind yourself once again of what God has done for you. But as we sing these songs now, will you make them a prayer as you respond to the one true God who loves you as a husband loves his bride? Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.